0: and um, take them out and turn with me to the Gospel of John. We will finish up the 14th chapter of the Gospel of John. For those of you that are visiting with us here at the Point Community Church, um, this is pretty much what we do is, under the leadership of the Lord, we, uh, we choose a, a, a book of the Bible, and then we work our way uh, through that book of the Bible. And so I haven't like, just got up this morning and be like, hey, I'm going to preach um, John 14, uh, whatever, I think it's uh, 25 through 31. So this text, I did not choose this text. This text has chosen us, all right? That's the way to, to look at it this morning. And um, it's a good thing to, 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 be able to, preach from God, to be able to preach God's word, right? So this morning, we won't be just preaching from God's word, but we actually, uh, my task that's set in front of me is to preach God's word. And so John, the 14th chapter, such a joy to have you here and to be here. Um, If you're using one of those pew Bibles, it's on page 901. I'm not checking the score of the game. I'm actually setting a timer, believe it or not. I actually set that there. Uh, As my grandfather would say, you know what this means? Nothing, right? But we'll try to uh, be sensitive to the time. All right, John the 14th chapter, verse number 25. This is what John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as we'll even talk about today. Jesus says this, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Here's some good news. You ready? Peace. Peace I leave with you. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. That's good news. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the powerful name of your Son, Jesus And the strength, not of our own, but his strength through the giving of the Holy Spirit. And we pray today that you would give us minds to understand your word, ears to hear your words, hearts to receive your words, hands and feet that are quick to do your words, that we wouldn't just be hearers only, but that we would be doers of your word. Father, I pray for us as a church both those who are visiting this church and those who are members and attenders of this church, Lord, that just as many of us have been doing this week as we've got out the rototiller and the hoe and the shovel and we've broken up the fallow ground so that it can receive new seed, I pray that you, in this moment of springtime, that you would break up the fallow ground of our hearts so that it may receive the seed of your word, that you would plant it down, deep into our hearts and that it may ultimately bear fruit. Help us to love and to cherish your word and to love and to cherish you, Jesus, even this morning. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you. Be seated. So, with every verse that we cover in John 14, 15, 16, 17, we're inching closer to Jesus' arrest, his trial his beating, his crucifixion, his death, and his resurrection. But even though it will take us still a couple of months to get through the remainder of John till we get to the actual narrative, the actual account of Jesus's crucifixion, it will take us months to get there. But in context, in what Jesus is happening, in what's happening here in the gospel of John, it will just be a few short hours In just a few short hours, Jesus will leave this upper room. Jesus will go across. He will pray to the Father in the garden. And then he will hear the footsteps of the chief priest guards and Judas Iscariot coming to betray him where he will be arrested and he will leave. And so Jesus is speaking here in this upper room. It's it's often called this text of scripture is called the upper room discourse because that's where it's taking place. And Jesus is speaking there, as we've looked at, and we even see here, he's speaking to his disciples who have troubled hearts, and yet Jesus is confident. The disciples are troubled, they're anxious, they're fearful, but Jesus is confident and what we've been doing the last few weeks is i said there's a theme running throughout this section of the bible i don't know how much longer we'll look at it like this but the theme is this is the advantages to jesus's ascension because that's where jesus will go after his resurrection After Jesus is resurrected from the tomb, he'll spend 40 days with these same disciples. He will appear to them. He will cook breakfast for them. He will uh, reaffirm them of his love for them and their mission that they're called to be on. He'll spend 40 days doing that. At the end of that 40 days, Jesus will ascend back into heaven as he speaks of here. He will return back to the Father where he will sit on a throne where he is today reigning and ruling, holding the very cosmos together with the power of his word and interceding for believers. Believers. Where is Jesus right now? Right now, Jesus, the real Jesus in his glorified body, and his glorified state, is in heaven sitting on a throne, reigning and ruling and interceding for us when we pray and as we pray, those of us who are believers. And so Jesus is preparing his disciples for that. And so we're talking about the advantages Jesus gives of Jesus' ascension and then also the Spirit's descension that as Jesus ascends into heaven Jesus will then as we see in this text the father will send the holy spirit to the disciples and they will fill the holy the holy spirit will fill the disciples and they will make them their witnesses and then we enter into this present day ministry of the church and what's happening right now Jesus is ascended in heaven on a throne and the spirit is among us with us those of us who are believers the spirit is in us working. And what Jesus will say in the 16th chapter is, this is an advantage. It is to your advantage that I ascend and the Spirit descends. And so we've just been numbering those advantages and we find them in the text. The first advantage we saw a few weeks ago was the advantage is that the Holy Spirit would empower, the Holy Spirit would prepare us, lead us, and empower us, that us is His disciples, is His church, The Holy Spirit would prepare us, lead us, and empower us for great works so that we may do great works in Jesus' name. We said that has very little to do with the miracles and has everything to do with Jesus' mission. The second advantage that we saw last week is the Holy Spirit will create newness in us. He will give us a new life, new position, new love. What I said to Grayson from Scripture is, Grayson, you've been united with Christ in his death, and you've been raised to walk in newness of life. Who who applies that newness to us? It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul says in um, 2 Corinthians that we are made new. We're new creations in Christ Jesus. That's what we're talking about, or that's what we talked about. This morning, we're going to look at two more. So we will double the number of advantages, which is a good thing. The first one we're gonna look at this morning is the Holy Spirit brings supernatural peace to believers. And the last one we'll look at toward the end of the sermon. Won't take us as long, but we'll look at this. If the Holy Spirit's dissension means that Jesus's mission is complete, victory has been won, and Jesus has been gloriously reunited with the Father. All right, I know I just read it, but let's look at just verses 25 and 26. Just two verses, and we'll chunk this out, and we'll walk through this text together, okay? So John 14, 25, and 26, John records Jesus' words, and Jesus says this, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. Jesus is there in the room in bodily form with them. Verse number 26, But the Helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, this isn't the first time that Jesus has referred to the Holy Spirit as the helper. Maybe your version of the Bible says the comforter. And I said that that's a decent translation of what the Holy Spirit and the word used here that Jesus uses. It's a decent translation, but we also got to recognize that the Holy Spirit does much more than just comfort. It doesn't just stop with Jesus, with the Holy Spirit bringing comfort, although he does comfort us, but it's much more than that. And so the better translation would maybe be the word helper, as the ESV is translated. Maybe another way to look at it is the, the advocate would be another translation of it. The word that Jesus is uses is here in the Greek is the word paraclete. Right? Not, I say this, I, I, I don't know why I say this every day, but not, not a paraclete like you wear on your feet or a parakeet that's a bird, but a paraclete. It's the word para, which means to come alongside of. It's the word cleat, which means uh, to call. And so Jesus will call the Holy Spirit. The Father will send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come and he will be alongside of, he will be with, he will be in every believer not just for the, uh, the super spiritual believers, not for the believers that have undergone a second experience of the Holy Spirit, but the Bible teaches that for every believer, they will receive the Holy Spirit. In its fullness, you have it. Now, whether you recognize it and walk in knowledge of that truth, that's a different subject. But if you are a believer, if you've renounced your sin, if you've received Jesus as Savior, if you've asked Jesus to forgive you, you said, Jesus, I'm sorry for sinning against you. I am a sinner in need of salvation. I can be saved through you and you alone. And you've confessed that and professed that. Then you received the Holy Spirit. In fact, it was the Holy Spirit that enabled you to do that. Your profession was evidence of the Holy Spirit that was already at work in you. Such grace, right? You wouldn't have done it apart from the Spirit. And so one of the manifestations of the Spirit at work in your life, whether or not you've received it, is you call Jesus Lord. That's what John teaches us in 1 John. And so that's how we test the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit has come, and the Holy Spirit is our helper. He's come, and He's alongside of us. He's helping us and enabling us and assisting us and empowering us and encouraging us in this present life so that you and I can live our lives to the fullness, to the glory of Jesus. What's he doing in your life right now? What is he doing in your life? Well, I know what he wants to do. He wants to empower you and encourage you and to help you and to come alongside of you and fill you so that you can live your present life to the glory of Jesus. Look at what Jesus assigns as one of the roles of the Holy Spirit in this text. Jesus says to his disciples that the Holy Spirit will teach you all things in bringing to remembrance all that I have said to you. This promise that Jesus makes here, this promise to the disciples that he makes that the Holy Spirit is going to do, this will be fulfilled whenever the apostles and their associates, some of the very men that are in this room, when they sit down to tell their story, to pen their story, that will become the New Testament. What's happening is whenever they sit down to tell their story, to write their story of the New Testament, it's the Holy Spirit is giving life to that. The Holy Spirit is doing just as Jesus had promised him to do. He's teaching them and bringing into remembrance all that Jesus has taught them, all that Jesus has said to them. That as these men, as they will write, especially the four gospels, but the entire New Testament, they will not be men writing on their own authority they will not be men writing under their own initiative they will not be men writing under their own power they will not be men writing or they will be men i should say writing under the supernatural power and the supernatural authority of god the holy spirit peter will say this when he writes second peter in chapter 2 i mean in chapter 1 verse 21 peter said no prophecy is ever produced by the will of man But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit of God. And that's precisely what Jesus is prophesying here. That's precisely what Jesus is promising. As you men will be carried along by the Spirit of God, by the Holy Spirit, you will be inspired to write the New Testament. And listen, history bears this out. History bears out the fact that these men are some of the men who who will be the ones who will write the New Testament. And this won't come um, from their own, but this will come from God. The Holy Spirit, it is the Holy Spirit who inspired the Bible to be written. The word inspired literally means breathed. It means God breathed. Paul writes this in 2 Timothy verse chapter number 3, 16. All scripture, Paul says, is breathed out by God. That God, through the Holy Spirit, he superintended the human authors so that in their own words, via, the, via their own individual personalities, they wrote the scriptures and they are inspired fully to the very words used and they are without error in all that they affirm. That's what we believe about the Bible. And as I said, history bears this out. But not only will the Holy Spirit inspire the Bible to be written, it is the Holy Spirit even currently today, this morning, who illuminates the Bible to be understood. Look at this. It's kind of a lengthy text. I had trouble kind of uh, summarizing it and breaking it down. But look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 10-16. through 16. He says, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, it's the Spirit who's inspiring these things that Paul is writing as a letter that will be delivered to the church in Corinth that will become holy inspired text. It's the Spirit. For the Spirit, he says, searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows, and now he's using an illustration, for who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person? Who knows what's going on inside your mind? You do. Your spirit knows that. Your soul knows that. That's what he said, which is in him. So no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have, bringing that down into how he works. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. That we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. For the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. It is the Holy Spirit who comes alongside of us, Filling us, changing our hearts, giving us spiritual understanding in order to understand spiritual insights, in order to spiritually be able to apply the word of God. Now listen, this isn't something mystical or magical. It is supernatural because it's the work of the spirit. Paul's talked about that. It's not from human wisdom. It's from the spirit of God, but it's not something mystical or magical. This isn't national treasure that you got to know the code in order to decipher it, right? Like you you remember like some of you as kids and you had to get the, you got the writing, but then you got the code and you had to do something in order to figure it out, in order to read it, you had special glasses in order to see it. It was written with invisible ink or whatever. That's not what Paul is talking about. Like whenever the Holy Spirit inspired God's word to be written, guess how he did it? He used words, real words with real meanings, real definitions. There's no hidden meanings. There's no hidden definitions. It's real words that he used. Praise God for that, right? Praise God that not only has he given it and spoken it in words, but he used words and languages that can be translated. So you and I can hold Bibles in our hands, not written in Latin, not written in Greek, not written in Hebrew, but we can hold English versions of the Bible, God's inspired word, in our hands, and he's used words that you can understand. Now, people will say to me often, like, man, the Bible's hard to understand. And I say, well, that depends. Like, one, what version are you using? Yeah, if you're using thee and thou and all of that, like, yeah, it's hard to understand. Certainly, if you're trying to read it in Greek, I mean, it's all Greek to us, right? That's going to be difficult to understand right? Yeah, there are parts of the Bible that are hard to understand, but there are parts of the Bible that are easy to understand. The problem isn't necessarily even with our understanding, it's our application of that. And that's what Jesus is changing. That's what the Spirit changes, is how we can apply, how we can apply the words into our lives, how we can really understand the words of God in our lives, really with spiritual understanding. Now, let me give this illustration. And I will admit that all illustrations break down if you carry them out, right? Far enough, the illustration will break down and this one will too. But listen, I can receive a text message from my wife of two simple letters, one word that will immediately change my day. It will immediately brighten my day, give me something to look forward to. It will change my day. That simple word is just a simple word, hi. Just nothing else. Just when my phone dings and I look down or my Apple Watch and I just get from my wife, hi. I go, well, hi there. <laughs> now, if Pastor Derek texted me, hi, I would say hello. (laughs) What's up? Question mark. When Luann texts me, hi, I know what's up, right? I know what she's saying. What she's saying, what hi means to us is, I'm thinking about you. I love you. You are mine. I'm yours. And And it's just a communication that we do between the two of us to say like, hello, right? But it means so much more than, Just hello. If anyone else sends it, it's just hello. But listen, but since I know, since I know the source of the text, since I know the author of the message, since I know her heart, since I have a relationship with her, there's a deeper, more intimate understanding of the word that she used. And the words that she used have a much more profound effect on my own heart, and on my life. And believers, you and I, through knowing Jesus, we know the source of the Bible. We know the author of the Bible. We know the heart of the author. And, they, and we who are in right relationship with that author, we have Jesus' words. And Jesus' words to us, they have a deeper, more intimate, more profound meaning. We, by the power of the Spirit, we receive the words, we accept the words, we understand the words. I think that is what Paul is even getting at. Let me also add this, that the Spirit changes the disposition of our human hearts. The Spirit changes our disposition and our attitude toward God, toward the things of God, Toward God's holy word. Look at what Paul said. If you'll remember what Paul said in the 14th verse of that chapter that that I read. He said, we once thought all of this was folly. And many of you, you can think back before you were converted, before you were saved. And you thought all of this in the Bible and spiritual talk, that it was all folly and it was all foolishness. It was good for religious wing nuts, right, to which you did not want to be one. And now some of you, by God's grace, you are one. And the very things that you used to, I don't know about that. And I don't know that I'm going to read my Bible. And I don't know that I need to go to church. And I don't know that I need to be involved in a small group. And I don't know that I need to study. And I don't know. And now you're doing those things. And what occurred? You received the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit made you born again. He implanted a new disposition in you. He gave you new taste buds. That's what we're talking about. That the Spirit can change our taste buds. You know how they say that every seven years your taste buds change? I think that's not true because I've hated peas my entire life and I still today hate peas. There's been a lot of seven-year trans- transitions that have happened in my lifetime to get me to the place of 44 years old and never have my taste buds changed to where I like peas. I've never desired peas a day in my life, right? The only meal I've ever turned down in Haiti was whenever she made pea lasagna. Who makes pea lasagna? But this lady made pea lasagna. Lasagna noodles, pasta sauce, and I thought, okay. Haitian lasagna, let's dig in. And I lifted up the first layer of the noodles and it was peas. Like what demonic influence voodoo do you people believe in here? Bo, when you take me to Honduras, I will do my best to eat foods. I love foods, but if they serve a pea, forget it. But listen to me, some of you had taste buds that once thought spiritual things tasted bad. And Jesus, when he sends his spirit into our hearts and our lives, he gives us new taste beds as evidence of our salvation. The spirit brings new desires where we desire God's word. Peter says it like this in 1 Peter 2, verses 2 and 3. Like newborn infants, we long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it we may grow up into salvation. Some of you need to grow up. That's, I'm just reading the text. You just need to grow up into salvation. You need to grow. We're no longer stumbling around like a child, but you grow up into salvation. And how does it happen? Well, you gotta long for the pure spiritual milk. And then as you get that spiritual milk in you, it grows you up. And then Peter asked the question, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Have you tasted Have you tasted that the Lord is good? That's a change of taste buds. Have you tasted that the Lord is good? Now desire his milk, desire his word. That's what he's getting at. Let's move forward. Look at what follows the promise of the Holy Spirit. The promise of the Holy Spirit is to inspire and to illuminate God's God's word, especially Jesus's promises, Jesus's word. But there's another promise that falls on the heels of this. One thought in Jesus's mind, verse number 27, Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus promises to his disciples, standing there with troubled hearts, Jesus promises supernatural peace. A peace, as Peter writes, that per, uh, far surpasses understanding. It's his peace, Jesus' peace, that he will give to them. Now, before we go any further, we got to define peace because we are, by and large, a people on the pursuit of peace. Are we not? We live in a culture where we are a people in pursuit of peace. So what is he speaking about peace? Usually people will speak of peace and they're just talking about the absence of turmoil. I mean, certainly turmoil is all around us, right? For some of us, turmoil is in you and it's around you and it's in your family and it's in your workplace, right? And it's in... Our nation and it's in our world that part of the effects of the fall is peace has been robbed from this creation and we are in turmoil. And there is though within the heart of man, there is an inherent desire for peace. There's a desire for peace. Pastor John MacArthur, he says this, people talk about trying to find some peace and quiet. How many of you here are like looking for that? Moms of toddlers in the room, you're like, yes, I'm just looking to be able to go to the bathroom by myself, right? Then I'll get some peace and quiet, maybe, hopefully. I just want to take a shower and find some peace and quiet. Others of you, you, retreat. Some of the men, we go to ponds fishing, lakes fishing. Some of you go to golf courses. I don't know why. It looks like it just leads to further and further frustration. But nevertheless, some of you go there. And why do you do that? You go on vacation to beaches here and there. You go, what are you looking for? You're looking for some peace and some quiet, Right? That's what you're looking for. You're looking for peace or quiet. Others of us, we're trying to make peace with someone. Our in-laws, our outlaws, our spouses, we're trying to make peace with that person. Law enforcement, we're trying to give it, we're, they are given the task to keep the peace. Global arbitrators are trying to establish peace. That we all are looking for peace until we finally, what? Rest in peace, RIP. That we're looking for peace. And oftentimes when our culture describes peace, it's just really looking for the absence of that conflict, the absence of turmoil, but that's not what the Bible means when it speaks about peace. It's speaking of something more comprehensive. In the Old Testament, the word used, the Hebrew word used for peace is the word shalom. Some of you maybe heard that. It's a very popular word. It's used some 250 times in the Old Testament is shalom. It becomes a greeting that the Jewish people use. They even use it still today. They will say, instead of saying hello, they will say shalom. And what they mean, it's a greeting of blessing. What they mean by shalom, it's a wish for completeness. It's a wish for contentment, a wish for fulfillment, a wish for satisfaction. So when a Jewish man greets another with shalom, he's not just saying, hey, I hope the turmoil you're in. With your wife, I hope that it lays to rest. I hope that you and your wife quit fighting. That's not what he means. What he's saying is, I wish for you all that is good, all that is blessed, all that brings satisfaction, all that brings fulfillment, all that brings cl- completeness and contentment. Who wouldn't like some shalom? Sign me up, right? In the New Testament, the word peace, as Jesus even used it here, is the word, I reign. It's um, the same root word where we get the name Irene. But Irene is a word that literally describes a tranquil state of the soul. A soul at rest. A contented and satisfied soul. Where, do we, where can we get some? right? Jesus says it's his and he gives it to us. But the truth is, though, before we get to the good news of how do we get it, we've got to talk about the bad news of why don't we have it. That shalom has been fractured and broken. Our reign is not our present experience. Why? Because of sin. That in the garden, when God established and built everything that lasted a whole two chapters of the Bible, right, 66 books written and only two chapters cover life before the fall, In those two chapters, there was this idea of shalom. There was peace with God and peace with creation and peace with one another. There was a state of tranquility and peace. It talks about in the cool of the evening that God would come and visit, God would come and visit Adam and Eve and spend time with them, but sin has fractured. Sin has broken that. It has fractured our relationship with our creator. It has fractured our relationship with one another. It has fractured our relationship with God's creation. But through Jesus, through Jesus' death on the cross, through his resurrection and through his spirit, Jesus brings peace with God so that we can experience the peace of God. That what Jesus is promising here is he is promising to his disciples the peace of God, a peace that you can know a peace that the Spirit brings. In fact, when Paul writes Galatians, Paul will pick up on this when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, a tranquility of the mind, a tranquility of the soul, a contentment from deep within us is what he's talking about. But listen, you will never know the peace of God apart from peace with God. That when you and I, when our great, 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 great grandparents, Adam and Eve, sinned in the garden. It fractured our relationship with God. It made cosmic chaos of our relationship. And Jesus has come. And one of the effects of Jesus' salvation that he brings is he now brings unity between man and God. For those of us who trust in Jesus, it's not just their sin that has fractured our communion and our relationship with God. It is also your sin and my sin. Let be careful not to point the finger just to you all. So I said, this is good news. Grace and salvation is good news, not just for grace. It's good news for sinners like me and you. That through Jesus' Jesus's perfect life and Jesus' substitutionary death and Jesus' victorious resurrection, that you and I, we can have our relationship with God put to, back together. Paul talks about this, I think, in Romans, the fifth chapter, that you and I can have peace with God. And it's through peace with God that you and I can have the peace of God. We are a people in pursuit of peace, right? People are going around looking for this tranquility of the soul, tranquility of the spirit. They're looking for that. They're doing yoga and meditations, and they're doing, you know, trying to find this peace and tranquility through, you know, stretches and and thinking good thoughts and positive thoughts thoughts and positive vibes and deep breathing exercise. Not that some of that stuff isn't bad. Some of it can be. Some of it you may be conjuring up a demon, but some of it's not necessarily bad things to do. They're good things to think about things that are good and right and true. Paul talks about that in Philippians. And there's nothing wrong if you want to get down on the floor and tie yourself up into a pretzel, like have at it. I can't do it, but if you can do it, more power to you, you know? Do those things. We're looking for peace and tranquility and smelling essential oils and burning incense and doing all of this. And what are we after? We're after looking for the peace of God that only God can bring. And you will never experience the peace of God apart from peace with God. And peace with God is only made through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You putting your personal faith in the person of Jesus and his real work that he did. That's what Jesus has been saying throughout the whole book of John. It's only through that that we can experience true peace. But let's drill it down a little more. Let me go even one step further, because if anything, I always want to be so practical. I just, in my preaching and in my ministry, I just want to be so practical. And this text is very practical and pragmatic. And I, I really wanted to help you I wanted to say more than just, hey, repent of your sin and believe in Jesus and you can experience peace. Like I understand, I, like I, I, there may be some of you in this room more anxious than I am, but I've yet to meet you. I mean, I was up last night for a long time, just anxious in my spirit. And I want to give to you texts like these help me in a very real way. And I want to give you some insight into how they help. I mean, first of all, look at what what Jesus is saying here. Context means everything. And look at this. In the context of the promise of peace, Jesus is talking about his word. Jesus is talking about here about giving peace. Peace, my peace. My peace I give to you. My peace I leave to you. But then look at what follows right after that. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Wait, I thought you said you were giving it. I thought you said you were going to leave it. Yeah, I am. I'm giving it. I'm leaving it. But you got to receive it. You got to pick it up. That's what he's saying. There's personal responsibility here. Let not your hearts be troubled believers. Let not your hearts be troubled disciples. Neither let them be afraid. But listen, our present experience of Jesus's peace is directly related to our ability to believe the gospel and to apply Jesus' words, in particular Jesus' promises, to our hearts. Your present experience of peace, Jesus' peace, supernatural peace, is directly related to your ability to believe the gospel Believe what Jesus has done. When I speak of the gospel, I'm not talking about believe the first four books of the New Testament. When I say the gospel, I'm using that as what Jesus has done for us. Believing that Jesus is sufficient, that Jesus is enough, that Jesus' salvation gives us everything that we possibly need. That what is our hope in this life and what is our hope in our death? That we belong to the Lord, both body and soul. That's what we're talking about here that Jesus is sufficient, Us, our ability to really genuinely believe that and also to apply Jesus' words, in particular Jesus' promises, to our hearts. One of my favorite authors, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says it like this. In his book, Spiritual Depression, which is a great book, it's not on the must-read list, but it's close to it it's in the must-read part two list, would be Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, Spiritual Depression. You can find that on Amazon. Um, you know, you understand Amazon, right? So look that up. Don't get the e-book version if they have it. Get the real book version because you're going to need a highlighter and you're going to mark this mug up, okay? Spiritual depression, it's great. It's the, absence of, it's the absence of peace is what spiritual depression is. But what spiritual depression is is mainly a treatment and an exposition of Psalm 42, So in Psalm 42, the the psalmist asks, he asks his soul, he says this, he says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So what's happening in that psalm is the psalmist is in turmoil. He's disquieted. He's cast down in his soul. His inner workings is in turmoil. You ever been there? And then he's asking himself, Why are you like that? And then he's telling himself to hope in God, to praise God, to think about God's salvation. And this is what Lloyd Jones writes about that. The main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression, in a sense, is this that we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourselves. He says, in another way, in the book, we listen to ourselves far more than we talk to ourselves. Am I just trying to be deliberately paradoxical? Far from it. This is the very essence of wisdom in this matter. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in this life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday, etc. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? It's yourself. Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's treatment in Psalm 42 was this. Instead of allowing the self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why are you cast down, oh my soul, he asked. His soul had been repressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and he says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. Lord jones says the main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself preach to yourself, question yourself. You have to say to your soul, why are you cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope thou in God, instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God who God is and what God is and what God has done and what, how God has pledged himself to do and do with you and in you, then, having done that, end on this great note. This is my favorite quotes. End on this great note. Defy yourself and defy other people and defy the devil and the whole world and say with this man, I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance who is also the health of my countenance and my God. Can you do that? If you take notes and if that resonates in your heart, last week we talked about lingering. Here's where I want you to linger today. Go to YouTube for those of you that can get on YouTube. If not, get your toddler. They can help you get on YouTube. Get on YouTube and type in app tat. A-P-T-A-T, and follow that with John Piper, and watch that three-minute quote. I wanted to do it, but we just don't have time. But APTAT is an acronym that will help you. It stands for admit, pray, trust, act, and think, and that's what you have to do in the moment. That's what Lloyd-Jones is getting at, where you speak to yourself. What do I speak to myself? I don't say just, shh, quiet down now, you. I got to speak something of power. And that's where the trust comes in, where you're trusting in Jesus and his promises. Let's close here. The last advantage of Jesus' ascension, Jesus' ascension, the Holy Spirit's descension, is the Holy Spirit's descension means that Jesus' mission is complete, that victory has been won, and that Jesus has been reunited with the Father. Look at, with me, if you would, at Verse 28. Jesus said, you heard me say that I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. The Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. But Jesus tells his disciples that their love for him should lead them to rejoicing because Jesus will return to where it all began. Jesus will return to the Father. Jesus will return to the fullness of his glory. Jesus will return to where he's supposed to be. Jesus will go home. And what that means for us, and why he says you should rejoice in this, isn't just be, hey, let's be happy for Jesus. What this means for us is that Jesus has accomplished his mission. Jesus will return back home to the Father whenever the mission of God has been complete. That Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. And when Jesus returns home, he says, there is now means for that which is lost to be found in and through me. But Jesus said that about his own life and about his mission, he did not come to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When Jesus returns home, Jesus will sit down because he just finished the task. Why is Jesus sitting down on a throne The same way like when you finish mowing your grass and getting all the weeds out, you sit down, it's a picture of completion. You look back on what you've accomplished in the same way Jesus will sit down on a throne because he's accomplished the task. His life has been given as a ransom for many. Jesus has accomplished his task. He's laid down his life to the glory of the Father in the purchasing of many to the glory of God. Forgiveness, our forgiveness has been purchased God's justice has been satisfied on the cross. That's why Jesus said you should be happy, you should rejoice. Also that victory has been won. Look at what he says in verses 30 through 31. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise and let us go from here. This is a reminder that Jesus' death was so much more than just some Romans executing a Jew on a cross. That the cross is the decided victorious blow to a cosmic war that had been raging on since creation. That Shortly after the fall in Genesis 3, God will utter these words to Satan, the serpent. He says, there will come a seed of a woman who will crush your head. You will strike at his heel, so there will be a cost involved, but the serpent, your head, will be crushed, and that is what's happening on the cross. This cosmic war is coming to an end. Jesus defeats all the enemies of God, namely Satan, death, and our sin. Jesus tells his disciples, he says, rise, let us go from here. Now, here's the problem. They don't go anywhere, so what does Jesus mean by this? This is something that puzzles scholars, because it's not till the end of John 16, that they leave, it appears that they leave the upper room. Maybe they relocated, but it doesn't look like they had any physical relocation. So what does he mean when he says, rise, let us go from here? What Jesus means by that in other places, in certain times, in uh, other Greek uh, writings outside of the New Testament, this same phrase that Jesus uses here is used of military conquest. Hey, what Jesus is saying here In the words of Todd Todd Beamer, those of you of my generation, you remember the guy from 9-11? Let's roll. Like when Todd on that plane uttered those words, let's roll, he wasn't talking about going anywhere. He was talking about defeating an enemy that is at hand. And in the same way, Jesus, when he says to his disciples, rise, let's go, what he's saying is we're going on a military conquest. We're gonna defeat the enemy. In order for Jesus to defeat the enemy though, he has to go into enemy occupied territory. He has to enter into death, enter into the grave, enter into the tomb in order to defeat Satan. And he does that on the cross. This morning, as we have opportunity to remember Jesus' great, the great cost of Jesus defeating the enemies of God. It was very costly. And we have this morning opportunity to remember that. On our behalf, Jesus has defeated the enemies of God, he has defeated death so that you and I will cross over from, life, from death unto life. For the believer, this is death and we cross over unto life. Jesus has conquered our sin. That's why Paul can write in Romans 8th chapter, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because forgiveness has been won by Jesus and how did he do it? He did it by going to a cross. He did it by making the cross beautiful with his blood. He did it by emptying it, by entering into a tomb and coming out again. And you and I, we have opportunity this morning to remember Jesus' great sacrifice for us. The cost at which our salvation was paid for, the cost at which it came, it cost Jesus' His life. And we remember that this morning with Jesus' this bread that represents Jesus' broken body, this juice that represents Jesus' shed blood. If you are here in the, room this morning, and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, a repentant follower, not just that you did like Grayson some years ago and you got dunked in the water, not that, but if your life gives evidence that you're savoring Jesus and longing to know Jesus, not perfectly, nobody would get to partake of it perfectly, but that's your true, genuine desire, then we invite you, regardless of where you may be a member, we invite you to take the Lord's Supper with us this morning. The way that we do it is we come to the stations. There's four stations set up in the room, two up here at the front, two in the back. And the elements of the Lord's Supper, the bread and the juice, it's found there. You can come forward and you can stand in line. And when it comes your turn, you can take one of the cups that's filled with juice. You can take a piece of the bread. You can eat it right there, or you can take it back to your pew and you can eat it there. There's going to be pastors like myself and Pastor Brian, and Pastor Frank, and we're going to be standing along that back wall behind the sound booth. And if you want to pray about anything, if you need to confess sin, if you need to ask Jesus to save you, if you need help navigating what that looks like, if you've got questions that you may, need to be, uh, you may need to ask, you may need to be answered, like, I don't know that we can answer them all, and certainly we can't do it all right there, but we'd love to schedule a time to meet with you. If you need to be baptized, you want to schedule that. We're in the back. We'd love nothing more than to talk to you about baptism, what it means to follow Jesus. Offering baskets are in the front and the back. This is a time when we also give our offerings. That if you're here and you're a member of the Point Community Church or an attender of the Point Community Church, or if you just want to give to our mission, furtherance of the mission of God that God has placed us on here in downtown Frankfurt, you can do that by placing uh, your offering check, cash, It's about all that we take, I think. I don't know. could probably liquidate some gold rings or something if you want to put that in there. Put that in there. We'll figure it out. You could put that in there as well. Let's stand. Lord, we are a busy people. Oftentimes one of our problems is we can't be present, fully present. This cell phone generation, it's conditioned us to never be present. We're always thinking about what's next. We're, we're, we're physically here, but we're not here in mind. And I pray that we wouldn't do that in this moment. I pray that we wouldn't start thinking about, okay, where are we going to go eat and who are we are going to go with, where are we going to see and where are we going to go after all of this? I pray that we could just be present. We can linger with you in your spirit and let your spirit do its perfect work in our hearts. May we give ourselves to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in this time. Have your way with us. Have your way with us in this time. May we not be too quick to run to the Lord's table. May we linger for a moment. May we confess our sin. May we come with a true and right and righteous posture as we come. Prayerful, grateful. May we come this morning like that, Lord. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in his ministry. Come and do your work. In your name we pray. Amen.